0: The Gospel for the Resurrection of Our Lord comes from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. You can find it on page 992 of the Pew Bible, and I invite you to stand again as you're able for the reading of the Gospel. From Matthew 28, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you so. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen This is the most marvelous good news. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. He is the king of heaven and earth, and he lives forever. This is the greatest news ever. With this, we're going to consider two basic questions. First, how do we know this to be true? That's an important question to ask. And second, what difference does this make? That's the other important question to ask. First, How do we know this to be true? And this is a really fundamental question. Before we consider anything else about Jesus' resurrection, and before we even consider anything else in Christianity, we should first consider whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. We might believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but unless he actually did, it does us no good. Sometimes we use the word believe to distinguish something from what we actually know. For example, someone might, uh, you might ask someone, is there Sunday school next week? And they might say, I believe so. What does that mean? It probably means that they think there is, but they don't really know for sure. If they knew that there is Sunday school next week, by the way, there is, they would simply say yes. Yes. Now, suppose someone asks you, did Jesus rise from the dead? What would you say? Would you say yes, or would you say, I believe he did? Now, a yes answer is pretty straightforward and also very confident, but what does an I believe answer mean? In this case, since the person asks a yes or no question, an I believe answer might mean that you don't really know. It would sound like You think he did, and you're hoping he did, but you don't really know for sure. It might also imply that you believe this, but someone else might not, and that's okay. But a belief doesn't really count for anything unless it is actually true. In this way, we we often use the word believe to mean something less than actual knowledge. But the way the Bible uses the word, and by the way, this is also true for the creeds, believing means more than knowledge. And this is the relationship between believing and knowledge. Belief is not less than, belief is more than. Believing something means that we know a thing and we trust in it. And so in the Creed, when we confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, that does not mean that we think or wish that this is who God is. It means that we know this is God and we trust in him. This is the older classical meaning of the words faith and believe. The the modern meaning is closer to thinking, wishing, or maybe even sometimes just pretending. But the classical meaning is to know something and to trust in it. Now, we should not abandon the word believe. It is a biblical word, and we should use it rightly and try to recover it. But since this is the way it has come to be used, there are some instances where maybe we shouldn't use it. And when we do use it, we should be careful not to use it in the way that an unbelieving world uses it. If someone asks you, did Jesus rise from the dead, you should simply say yes. Because this is not something that we merely think, wish, or pretend to be true. This is something that is true regardless of our confidence level in it but maybe maybe you're thinking to yourself well i'm not always a hundred percent confident in jesus resurrection maybe it's one of those things that you think is true or you hope is true but you feel like you can't really know it for sure and so you might feel like your faith is not strong enough (laughs) but here's the beauty of reality A thing is either true or false, regardless of how confident we are in it. Even if you waver in your faith, and you probably do, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. So how do we know this? Because the eyewitnesses saw Jesus after his resurrection, they proclaimed it to everyone around them, they wrote it down for us to read, and they were willing to die for this truth. That's the short answer and I'll I'll say a little bit more about it as well, but not nearly as much as could be said. Uh, I'll tell you though that I would be very happy to discuss it further with anyone who wants to talk more about it, especially if you have doubts. But but for now, we'll keep it uh, a little bit shorter and simpler. One of the most significant aspects of this is that it's falsifiable. Now, that does not mean that it's false, quite the opposite really. Falsifiable really means that if something is false, if it is false, it can be demonstrated to be false. With many things, before we even consider whether or not something is true, we should first consider whether or not it can be tested. Is there, at least theoretically, a way to prove it false? Now, in the case of Jesus' resurrection, it's pretty simple. Find the body of Jesus. You do that, and the entire Christian religion crumbles. Now, we should also realize that just because no one ever has found the body of Jesus, that does not automatically prove that our religion is true. But what this does is it puts Christianity into the category of historical study. It is very much different than other religions where we're simply asked to believe something that cannot be verified. Christianity, at the very start, opens itself up to being challenged. And so we can investigate Christianity the same way we would investigate any other historical claims. The eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection reported it publicly. And it wasn't just a matter of one or two or a few eyewitnesses, but hundreds of them. Now, That's a lot more uh, difficult to discredit than just a few. And we have passed down to us even today specific names of about two dozen of these eyewitnesses. We have personal details of them, such as what cities they were from or even who their relatives were. And all of this is written down for us. And furthermore, we have ancient manuscripts of these texts. And we can trace the transmission of the text over the last couple of thousand years, and we can tell, we can verify that what we have today is the same as what was written 2,000 years ago. It's not a case where someone could have changed the story long after the witnesses had died. It's simply impossible with the evidence that we have. The reports we have today are the same as what they were 2,000 years ago. But we might also ask, and people do ask this, well, what if everyone was just lying? People have been known to make up stories before, and so we ask, what did they have to gain by lying? Inventing religions has brought certain people fame and fortune. But does Jesus' disciples, they gained no fortune from this. I suppose they became quite famous, but they're most famous for the silly things that they said and did in the Gospels. But there was no fortune, and their ultimate payment from this world was most often death. From the very day of Jesus' resurrection, they were persecuted, and nearly all of them were executed for their testimony. Many people might die for their religion, but no one dies for a religion that they know to be false. And so we look, we look then at their testimony, and we can conclude that it is therefore credible. Now, there's a lot more, that can be said concerning each of these points or other points as well, and I'd be happy to talk with anyone about it. But this is the, the skeleton of the historical case. Many eyewitnesses saw Jesus after his resurrection. They reported it publicly. They wrote it down for us, and they, they willingly went to their death for this testimony. But now let's move on to the, the other question, the so what? What difference does this make for us? I'll give you three main benefits of Jesus' resurrection. The first one, and this is the foundational, fundamental benefit, we know that our sins are forgiven. The resurrection of Jesus proves that his sacrifice for our sins is sufficient, it was enough to pay our redemption price. On the cross, Jesus suffered and died for the sins of the whole world. And that, of course, when we talk about the sins of the whole world, that includes your sins because you're part of that world. The payment for sin was completed at the cross. But what if Jesus' crucifixion is all that we had? What if he just died and then nothing? What if he stayed dead? Well, since Jesus prophesied that he would rise from the dead on the third day, if he just stayed dead, we would conclude that he was either a liar or a lunatic, but certainly not the Lord of heaven and earth. Furthermore, we would have to conclude that our sins are not, therefore, forgiven. And that's not just because Jesus would be discredited, but also because life is simply the natural result of the atonement. The wages of sin is death. Sin is the whole reason we die. If we did not have sin, we would not die. In 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul says, the sting of death is sin. Sin is the reason we die, and it's the reason that we stay dead. Death has a right for a time to take us and hold us because we have sin. But where sin is removed, death loses its sting. And so it's only natural that after Jesus makes atonement for sin, He would rise from the dead. Think of death as a prison. A prison rightly holds guilty people. But what if the person in the prison is exonerated? That is, they're not guilty. Well, then the prison no longer has a right to hold them, and it has to let them go. Or what if the prisoner has served his sentence? He's paid what he owes. Then the prison has to let him go. Death is like that. Death is a prison prison. And Jesus, he took our sins upon himself. He had them. All of them were in his body. That's why there was darkness over the whole land in the middle of the day while he was hanging on the cross and dying. That's why he cried out in agony and complaint, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's because he had all of our sins in his body and the wrath of God was being poured out upon that sin. If Jesus dies then with our sins, but his sacrifice isn't enough to cover them, then he would remain in the prison of death. Our sins would hold him there. But his resurrection from the dead proves that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our sins. It means that they are completely paid for. This is the theological relationship between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, Just this last week, I I heard a a theologian say that Jesus' resurrection undoes his crucifixion. I had to hit the rewind to make sure I heard him correctly. Because it almost sounds kind of right, because life is the opposite of death, but it's completely wrong. Jesus' resurrection does not undo his crucifixion. It does not undo his death. Instead, it is the logical result of his crucifixion. Jesus rose from the dead because his crucifixion made complete atonement for sins. That means that his crucifixion, instead of being undone, it stands forever as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. We rejoice in Jesus' resurrection not simply because he is alive again, but because he has been crucified and is now alive forever. now we we always tend to rejoice when someone cheats death, if someone is terminally ill or, or maybe someone's heart even stops, but then they're revived or they miraculous re- miraculously recover. We rejoice in that we rejoice because We get something back that we thought we had lost. But Jesus' resurrection is so much more than that. It's not merely that Jesus is alive again. It's that he was crucified and is alive forever. And so we don't just get something back that we thought we had lost. We get something that we never even had in the first place. Forgiveness of our sins. Jesus Resurrection demonstrates that his sacrifice was sufficient and we are completely forgiven. That's the first benefit of Jesus' resurrection. The second benefit is that we have new life now. We heard this in the epistle reading from Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have a foretaste or a sample of Jesus' resurrection now. We have died with Jesus. Here Paul is recalling our baptisms. He talked about that in chapter 2. That's where we died with Jesus. And if we have died with him then we have also been raised with him. We experience this now in a mystical way. You are a new creation. You have received the Holy Spirit. We still have a sinful nature, and so we do not fully experience this, and we should not expect to, but we have new spiritual life through Jesus' resurrection. We have new, renewed spiritual desires. We want to love and obey God. Now, I'm not talking about perfection yet, but you have the righteousness of Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit. You have a new spiritual life. The third benefit is that we have certainty that we will be raised like Jesus. Now, I am talking about perfection, and I'm not just talking about a mystical experience, but I'm talking about your bodies being raised forever. Jesus swallowed up death by his death, and so death could not hold him, and neither can it hold those who depend on Christ. St. Paul also made this promise in the Epistle lesson. He said, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And this ties back to the first benefit regarding the forgiveness of sins. Remember, if your sins are forgiven, and they are by the blood of Jesus, then death cannot hold you either. When Jesus appears again, you will be raised to life. And all who trust in him will be perfected after his image. It's not merely that you will be alive again. Your life will not be the way it is now. You will not be plagued by sin. You will not suffer the effects of sin, which is death. But we will be raised just as Christ was, without death and without any hint of death. So much of the pain and suffering, well, really all of the pain and suffering that we experience in this life is a foretaste of death or or the beginning or the process of death. But in the resurrection, there will not be even a hint of any of that. There will be no pain, no suffering, no loss. You will finally be perfect and holy, and you will live forever with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with all the saints of God in the perfect new creation. You have all of this because Jesus died and rose again for you. His crucifixion made full atonement for sins, and so he rose from the dead, proving that you have forgiveness for all your sins, and you have new life now, and you will experience perfect life in the resurrection of the dead. Amen. And he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.